You're listening to a Stranger Cast at thestranger.com. Hey, it's Wednesday, October 24th, and I'm Eli Sanders, and this is Blabbermouth, the Stranger podcast in which we talk about what's going on this week. We are in the insane final stretch to the midterms. There's lies about caravans. There's lies about tax cuts. There's lies about even Dan Savage floating around, and he's here to unpack them with Rich Smith. We'll talk about all the last-minute nonsense and what the left should be saying to actually win. Maybe it needs a slogan, a big national slogan, or maybe it doesn't. After that, Chase Burns is here to report from inside a very entertaining and distracting click hole that he went down. It was all about the wonders of Jane Fonda. Finally, Rich is reading Identity by Francis Fukuyama. Jasmine Kaimig is here to talk with Rich and me about the central problem of this moment, identity, identitarians, identity, politics. But first, the mad dash toward Election Day. Rich, hello. Elijah, how are you? (laughs) (laughs) Feeling very biblical today. (laughs) Me too. You got to the biblical truth. I don't know my Hebrew name. That's not my Hebrew name, actually. I think it's Richie. (laughs) (laughs) That's my mom's name for me. I'm just Eli, but people like to get fancy and think it's that sometimes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Don't judge me. Dan, hello. You didn't Daniel. Daniel. Oh, there you go. Yeah. My biblical Hebrew name. <laughs> I was calling by your Irish Catholic name. My Irish Catholic name would be Daniel Keenan Edward Savage. Because Edward's my confirmation name for my grandfather, Ed Schneider, but also for uh, Edward II, the gay king of England, who was murdered by having a red hot poker shoved up his ass. Fascinating. Dang. So, as we are recording this, uh, there is a lot of news about pipe bombs, as if the midterm final stretch couldn't get any more dispiriting and insane. Who knows where this will be by the time you listen to it, but there have been pipe bombs sent to former President Barack Obama, uh, former President Hillary Clinton, sorry, former winning presidential candidate Hillary Clinton, sorry, uh, Winner of the popular vote, Hillary Clinton, and uh, George Soros, focus of of state, but secretary (laughs) of state, George Soros, focus of so much anti-Semitic conspiracy theory mongering horseshit, not just coming from the far far right, but coming from the White House, right? And and CNN received one also so it is kind of what's what's a trifecta plus one a trifecta plus one quadfecta a a quadfecta (laughs) listen but the real problem is the ted cruz can't sit down to dinner well we'll get to that in a minute but this is (laughs) this is a quadfecta plus one of uh the rights scaremongering uh greatest hits right they always talk about george soros clinton obama and cnn Right. And there they are all receiving pipe bombs. There was today. a breaking news for a moment that the White House had also received a bomb, but then that was quickly debunked. Yeah, a source said. A source said. What source in this administration might throw out weird stuff in the fog of news reporting meant to distract you and turn I think the default the setting power into victims? When it comes to quoting White House sources, shouldn't be a source said. It should be a source lied. Mm-hmm. And we should just go with lied until proven otherwise. So – Let's talk about all the lies that are flying right now in the midterms. The biggest one, I think, like the most blatant one, at least, is this tax cut 
that Donald Trump said is coming. There's there's a middle class tax cut of 10 percent that's coming your way before the election. Donald Trump said at a rally, I think it was in Texas with Ted Cruz, with Lion Ted. So now it's Lion Donald and Ted is beautiful, says Trump. But anyway, a 10% tax cut is coming. Congress is not in session. It cannot pass a tax cut before the election. Also, no one knew anything about this before Trump just said it. But then... And they packaged the last tax cut as a middle class tax cut, even though it was a tax cut for billionaires and corporations, right. the middle class and the working class got squat, but they called it a middle class tax cut that time. So that they're calling whatever's coming next a middle class tax cut. Fool me once, as George W. Bush once said, shame on you. Fool me twice. We don't get fooled again. <laughs> <laughs> also, also. Uh, after Donald Trump promised this middle class tax cut that is impossible to deliver before the election, the people in D.C. who always play cleanup for him leapt into action and were like, OK, how can we make this lie kind of real? It's just like the constant uh, calling the prop department to put in some fake like scrim behind his fabrication. So they might like hold a non-binding advisory vote or they might do something or other to like give some legitimacy to this bullshit, which is the idea that he's bringing a middle-class tax cut. So that's one. Two, the caravan. Sorry to mirror their stupid rhetoric, but yeah. So the caravan, they have been yelling about they being the right-wing media machine and saying that it's filled with Middle Easterners also false. Well, what is the caravan? Oh, first sorry. Of all? The car- what is the caravan? The caravan is a group of migrants who are demonstrating uh, for more more awareness and leniency toward refugees, is, is my take. People on claiming it. asylum from political violence and gang violence in Honduras and Guatemala, and they're basically at the bottom of Mexico right now. You'd think right. from Fox News that they were already in San Antonio. Right. They're a thousand miles away, and there's all this scaremongering about who might be there. And, you know, Trump, of course, got on television and lied and said that there are uh, Middle Easterners in the caravan who are going to sneak into the country and blow everything up, right. coming with their bone saws. And it's bullshit, and there's there's no support for it. And there's a hilarious segment on Fox News, of all things, where they assembled uh, a panel of average Americans and working Joes to ask them how they felt about the caravan, and they cut the segment short because the people they were interviewing were saying, well, we are a nation of immigrants, and, <laughs> and I've seen on TV, these seem to be mostly women and children, and, and they were so off-message for Fox, which is trying to like scare the shit out of the people who are perpetually wetting their pants because they watch nothing but Fox News, you know, the brave Americans, the real Americans with all their guns who are afraid of six-year-old Honduran girls who are sobbing on television because they lost their stuffed animal. And they had to cut that segment short on Fox News. So uh, maybe people aren't going to fall for it or be scared by it. Maybe the Democrats should rename it a cavalcade because the cavalcade is usually associated with the cavalcade of stars. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. It happens every – this is not the first time that the caravan has happened. It happens every year or every other year and by the time that the – I mean, the group of people, they, they march together, yeah, to raise awareness, but also because a lot of people feel better. There's more strength in numbers. They feel more solidarity as they're coming through. By the time Less likely they, to be preyed on by 
gangs or coyotes or whatever they're called now. Yeah, absolutely. And and then by the time that they get to the border, the, I mean, the last caravan that came through, uh, 200 people um, were all that was left of the you know mega caravan or whatever. And then they all went through a port of entry and they all sought asylum in the regular way. They're not pouring through, getting shot out of the barrels of tanks or whatever. You know, and it is perfectly legal to approach a legitimate uh, border crossing point and ask for asylum. Yeah. They're not breaking any laws. Yes, they're running yeah. from horrific gang violence that the U.S. is implicated. So we are doing something that a lot of people have been yelling about uh, where we are now talking about this thing that Trump and the right wing shoved into the consciousness even though it's not a thing. And the greatest example of how he just always turns that kind of thing into a win, 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 win for himself is when he got asked about it in the Oval Office the other day. A reporter asked him like, you said that there are Middle Easterners tucked in with this caravan. Do you have any evidence of that? And he was like, you need to go down and look for yourself. Like, it's the journalist's job to go and disprove the false thing that I said. <laughs> anyway, what should the Democrats be doing in the face of this nonsense, which is filling everyone's uh, feeds and consciousness and airtime? Should they be out there Maybe with, hey, we've got a better plan. We've got a contract with America. We've got the answer. We've got a better deal. Well, Democrats which, should be talking about health care, which is the number one issue uh, for vo voters uh, in all demos across the country. As Rachel Maddow impact on her show on Tuesday night. And right now we have this problem or this reality where Republicans are pushing out ads or they're just lying, saying that they now support or they always have supported protections for pre-existing conditions, that they de facto support Obamacare because Obamacare is now popular and making it possible for insurance companies to return to the days when they could deny coverage to people with pre-existing conditions, which is really everyone mm -hmm. is unpopular. And they're just straight out fucking lying and getting away with it. And that's what Democrats should be talking about. Democrats should be, we're always yelling at the New York Times and the Washington Post to use the L word, to say lie, not falsely stated or or whatever. Just say fucking lie. And Democrats have to start saying they are fucking lying to you. Ted Cruz is lying to you. Trump is lying to you. All these little Congress critters across the country, they're fucking liars. Effing liars should be in the Dem lexicon. What I wanted to ask you about was this thing that the Democrats tried to put into the lexicon, like with a crowbar back in 2017, this idea of a better deal. They were going to have a slogan that was going to be their answer to Trump's simple slogans, and it went nowhere. The left, in its uh, favorite kind of way, tore the left's own idea apart, and it, maybe it wasn't a great idea. So then the Democrats came out with a new slogan for the people, and that also has totally disappeared. And what's happened is the Democrats are heading into the midterms without any centralized kind of nationalized slogan with which they will answer all these things that Trump is trying to bring out to nationalize the election and make it about him. But my question is, is that actually, even if it involved two face plants on slogans for the Democrats over the last year and a half, is that actually kind of brilliant is the thing to do seriously in a buster keaton slapstick kind of brilliant way like falling on their face with such a plum in a this is no longer a moment or an era or a media environment in which a centralized nationalized slogan works anymore there's one Your slogan. Own team tears the slogan apart inevitably and it doesn't work it just gives a big old target for trump to work with 
And so what's happened by default or design, I don't know, is that the Democrats are running this decentralized, whatever the fuck works in whatever the fuck race you're in, just say it. We don't care. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, I would say that I've got two things on that. The The first thing is that there is sort of central messaging. Everyone is talking about health care. Everyone is trying to pivot back to health care. When people talk about immigration, they pivot and say, um, you know, the Democrats want to pass a clean dream act where there's bipartisan solutions on both sides we're just getting obstructed by these horrible you know republicans so there there you do hear the kind of same and the tax bill is bad and it's you know they want to make it um permanent for corporations but not for the middle class you you hear these kinds of um messages over and over and but i think that the sort of central message or slogan that they're not saying is we're voting for women now like that this is the big women wave and they don't want to say it right because there's 300 over 350 women are running across the country uh for 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 congress and um and governor and, and state races about about uh, 170 on the uh, Republican side. Uh, half of those uh, Democratic women are challengers. That you you hear at the state party level, a lot of Democrats being like, "We're leading with women. Women are the you know the the ones who are going to bring us over the top." But I just don't think that they want to use that as a, a national slogan because um, because then Kanye West might not vote Democratic or because, because it might he doesn't not want to get girl well. cooties, which was his message at the White House. It might not play well also in a place like Montana, where I was for a minute last week and where John Tester is in a really difficult Senate race this is a Democrat who's a farmer who's a moderate, who's all about veterans and, and has not, a $3 haircut, $3 haircut, four fingers on his right hand, I think, because he lost one in a meat grinder. True story. Like this is who this guy is. And he's out there saying, yeah, I've got a lot of problems with Obamacare. He's kind of quasi running against Obamacare, even though he voted for it, because that's what he needs to say. In we Montana. have to be grownups and allow for Dems in red states or Republican leaning districts to triangulate to mm -hmm. grab the Clintonism off the shelf from the 90s just a little bit without then crucifying them in San Francisco and Seattle and Portland and New York for apostasy. Mm -hmm. Apostasy? How do you say that word? It's one of those words you read and then you say it out loud for the first time into a microphone and you You're sound like an Catholic. idiot. The root is apostasy. For heresy. I'm going to go with heresy because yeah, I know right. how to pronounce it. Um, and, and we have to not do that. But I want to jump back to the slogan thing really mm -hmm. quickly. So I think testers should be able to be critical uh, and triangulate a little bit if it means we're going to have a Dem majority in the Senate or the House. A House candidate, I think, can also get away with that. But we've talked before, like, I'm Fine with a pro-life Democratic candidate running in a Republican-leaning district so long as it's contributing to a pro-choice Democratic majority. Those are the kinds of compromises and accommodations that you have to make to build a majority. Anyway, back to the slogan thing. Sorry, I had a lot of cocaine this morning. Um, <laughs> the best slogan that I heard anyone float was floated by Bill Maher. Um, where he, and I think it should be uh, tweaked a little bit. He was saying about Trump over and over again, he is not on your side. Mm -hmm. Not They are not on your side, should be the Democratic slogan about everybody with an R after their name. They are not on your side because it, it posits whose side are they on. They're on the side of the wealthy. They're on the side of polluters. They're on the side of people who want to steal your fucking health care uh, and watch your kids die and watch you go fucking bankrupt. They are not on your side, should be the Dem slogan. Rich, you were just taking a tour of three different congressional districts in this state, Washington State, home of Blabbermouth World Headquarters, where <laughs> you have three different candidates in hot house races. That's right. Doing kind of three different things, three different stylistic approaches. How'd that look on the ground? Uh, it was really interesting. Um, the One of the problems... Uh, 
just getting back to our conversation about one of the problems that you run into if you have like a we're voting for women now slogan is that republicans are women too and and in, in and our, a lot of them don't want to vote for other women as evidenced by one of the districts that you were in right there's a and there's there's you know of course the idea that there's a meritocracy anybody voting for anybody because of their gender is somehow bad or um uh, voting with their vaginas right yeah that, that this is somehow negatively negatively reflects on the on, on the candidate which i think is a little bit dumb but it does get a little bit tricky when women are running against other women um so in southwest washington for instance you have democratic challenger carolyn long who's in a tight race with um four-term incumbent uh, jamie herrera butler and long is running on this you know when you can't just say like we're going for the woman now um what happens is that you sort of uh you run on what you actually mean by that, which is that we want somebody who has meaningful lived experience in Congress who can represent like, you know, who has had to get a, um, had trouble getting, uh, jobs, had trouble getting ahead because of the patriarchy and sexism, had trouble with, you know, getting adequate health care and who can go in there and sort of knows, knows my problems and can fix them. And so Carolyn Long's version of that is, um, you know, that she is, her husband is a Republican. And so every time she's, you know, she's running on the civility campaign mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and she's going to go in there and sort of make people talk to each other, not in a kind of kumbaya way, but, you know, get together on shared values and principles. And she does that every morning at the house when she passes her husband the salt. Right. Yeah. And over in the eighth district in Washington state, which you are also in, Dr. Kim Schreier, will be more at the barricades, not in a scary way she tries for, but she's like very resistance doctor. Yes, that's right. Her entire personal experience is, you know, um, uh, they, they tried to repeal Obamacare. That was going to uh, hurt her patients. She's a, a pediatrician. That was going to kick a lot of people off Medicaid and off their insurance. And so she's going to bat for her um, for her patients. And she's going to be, you know, um, she might be the only woman doctor in Congress. And so she's also sort of doing this kind of like, I have the personal um, lived professional experience that's going to be useful in Congress rather than who she's running against, Republican Dino Rossi, who is uh, a long-term politician and a commercial realtor. And an anti-choice, anti-gay, anti-immigrant, trump filating creep. Yeah, he's a, he's a shitlord, and, uh, but he's got a nice smile. Mm-hmm. But before we leave Carolyn Long, uh, has anyone asked Mr. Carolyn Long who he's voting for? I just recently heard that she has won him over and that he <laughs> has planned to vote for his wife. Wow. All right. <laughs> Next, we are going to talk about how Dan Savage became an issue in an Illinois down ballot house race and a way to tuck your head in the sand and ignore all of this blissfully. Rich, do you ever get bummed out about that giant floating garbage patch in the Pacific? Yeah, it was the size of Texas. I mean, about how much plastic you consume, how many plastic bottles you go through in a day. Well, Everlane has figured out a way to turn your plastic waste into Wait, they don't just make me look great in jeans. They also make me feel better for helping the environment. They are turning your plastic trash into parkas. All of those straws are turning into coats? Yep, into puffy jackets in cool colors and fleece vests and sweatshirts. It is a new product line of clothes made entirely of virgin plastic. They are wizards. 
Everlane makes these long-lasting, beautiful essentials from plastic, and they work with the best ethical factories to do it. They make only premium essentials using the finest materials without traditional markups, and they tell you their real costs so you know you're never overpaying. They want you to know what you're paying for and why, and they're radically transparent about every step in the process from the materials they use to the ethical factories they work with. Because Everlane sells directly to you, their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers, their clothes look better, cost less, last longer, and this new line is made entirely of stuff that before it was turned into Everlane clothes was depressing the shit out of everyone and destroying baby seals. Essentials like their Cotton Crew t-shirts are exactly what they should be, simple, stylish, and made from quality materials. Rich, you just ordered some of this plastic... I got a long parka that that keeps me warm against these bone cold winter nights here in Seattle, and they look great. That is, the parka looks great with my jeans, which are also from Everlane. Do you feel like you're wearing a bunch of plastic bottles sewn together? No, I feel like I'm wearing stylish gear. Right now, you can check out our personalized collections at everlane.com slash blabbermouth. Plus, you'll get free shipping on your first order. That's everlane.com slash blabbermouth. Everlane.com slash blabbermouth. Chase Burns, hello. Hello. Welcome back. Uh, I'm glad you're here to help me congratulate Dan for his star turn on the front page of Breitbart today. And the Chicago Tribune. All right. This is the headline I woke up to. How sex columnist Dan Savage became an issue in a suburban congressional race. Such an issue. How did that happen, though? Uh, Apparently, Sean Caston, who's the Democratic challenger in Illinois 6th Congressional District, who's taking on uh, the douchebag Republican incumbent, Peter Roskam, uh, was interviewed somewhere and the Wall Street Journal, quoted it as saying that he admired me. And now this is the issue. This is the issue because I am a bad, bad man. And he has been the, – the Republican challenged him at a televised debate to disavow me. Did um, you get disavowed? I don't think I got disavowed. Hmm. So I don't have a disavowal fissure this morning, I'm glad to say. Um, but the, the, it, what's crazy is there's like multiple outlets are writing this all up and talking about every bad thing I ever did. But no one's calling me for comment, which is a little weird. Not that I would take a call from Breitbart. I just think the waiting by the rotary phone is the problem. It's probably <laughs> in your email. The, Demo- the, the headline at Breitbart, though, I kind of love. Democrat Sean Caston refuses to disavow anti-Christian bully Dan Savage. Uh, so it's for the anti-Christian stuff and not the sex anything. Well, I think the sex thing is always going to be a problem and the homosex thing is always going to be a problem with the Breitbart, right? Uh, but yeah, they are rehearsing um, a decade-old scandal where I said there's bullshit in the Bible and was accused of bullying some Christian kids when they walked out of a speech that I gave to 3,000 high school journalists. And I'm um, going back to the Melania Trump debacle. No, what Melania Trump debacle? Remember, you got the last time you got hammered by Breitbart was when you like said bad things about Melania Trump. Oh, fuck Melania Trump. She's a heinous piece of shit. <laughs> We're just trying to add Come on at to yeah. Breitbart. <laughs> gunning, you're gunning for two stories on Breitbart. She now. is a truther herself. Uh, she promoted racist lies about Barack Obama. She has promoted anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and participated in the piling on of a Jewish journalist who wrote a perfectly legitimate piece about her background. Fuck you, Melania Trump. You are as odious as your odious fucking husband. Well, there's there's their quote. <laughs> <laughs> 
And as uh, beautiful as it was, there's also one more reason that people, including us, just sometimes want to tune the fuck out from all the political news, all the midterm nonsense. Certainly all when the- you are the political news, you want to tune out from the political <laughs> yeah, news. Yeah, all the like, just crazy vilification of random people, not random people. Your, your neighborhood sucks advice columnist who's <laughs> only tried to be helpful, the vilification of him. Chase. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Now it's personal. (laughs) It is. You found a glorious way to stick your head in the sand or at least down a click hole uh, and get away from all of this. Yeah, I've been really passionate about Jane Fonda recently. Uh Um, I'm a bit bit late to it, but I think that... You mean Hanoi Jane? Okay, well, I I actually, you know, recently just found that out. Anyhow, that's part of the problem. I feel like I haven't been given the proper information about Jane Fonda. Part of the reason is because is she was gone from in the in the 90s. She disappeared and then she came back in 2005 with like Monster in Law, which was a horrible movie. And this is how most young people know Jane Fonda is from her like J-Lo movie Monster in Law. And I I recently fell down the click hole of the HBO documentary Jane Fonda and Five Acts. And I have to say that Jane Fonda is an iconoclast. Okay. What do you think of when you think of Jane Fonda? Workout videos. True. What do you think of? I'm super old. I think of Clute and On Golden Pond. I just watched Clute. Clute is really good. Mm-hmm. And that haircut that she has in Clute, anyhow. <laughs> you have to watch uh, They Shoot Horses, Don't They? I know that's that. That's actually next on my list. That's when that's her post-Barbarella phase. Anyhow. Um, and if you're a 13-year-old boy, you want to watch Barbarella. Yeah, I just yeah. love that you are a complete Jane Fonda blank slate. Oh. Going <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I just feel like I was robbed with a lot of important information. Like Because you were born too late. I know, I was born too late for Jane Fonda. But speaking of um, that workout empire, actually, did you know that workout empire, uh, according to her, um, the entire profits of the workout empire all went towards, she was married for a while to Tom Hayden, um, from 1973 to 1990, who was this kind of new left uh, v- radical figure in the media. He was anti-Vietnam. He ran for um, he ran for Senate, I think, in California. But he had a um, he had a uh, political action committee, I believe, called the Campaign for Economic Democracy, which was trying to get big uh, business out of government. And all of the proceeds from the Jane Fonda workout video went to that democratic uh, political action, which committee. is why we don't have big political. Big money or corporations meddling in our political system anymore. Thank you, Jane Fonda. No, I'm just saying that she she also like helped Jerry Brown the first time that he was governor. She was super close to him, and she basically like high kicked clean energy onto the ballots across California. And if and if Arnold Schwarzenegger would have been lifting for socialist causes, he would be president. And we just have it. Sorry. No, he couldn't be president. There's this thing in the Constitution. You know, you got to be born here. That's that's, a different click hole. That's true. What else did you learn about Jane Fonda? Ted Turner. Did that come up? Um, Yeah, Ted Ted Turner did come up. But she, you know, she was married to Ted Turner for about 10 years and she didn't act. She's a complicated figure. And then she left Ted Turner because she wanted to go um, act again. And that's when she started doing Monster in Law. What is it? So I've fallen down click holes like this. I... Okay, this is a little embarrassing, but I was the other day just I had some time. Something prompted this. Whatever you say can be used against you on Breitbart. I know. I know. All right. Well, anyway, I was like, wait, what's the difference between Neil Young and Neil Diamond? And then, I, and then I ended up on a endless, yeah. endless click hole about Neil Diamond, who actually has an 
interesting life that I didn't know anything about. And he writes good songs. He did. I He's thought it was great. Barry Manilow. Yeah. Yeah. Weed and Google is good, Eli. It's like when you're born determines what you get programmed with about a person. And I got programmed with like Neil Diamond is cheesy and you don't really know the difference between him and Neil Young. And then I went through this click hole and I'm ashamed to say I went through it because I actually went through it and thought what Dan thought, which is, oh, he wrote some good songs. Anyway, yeah, no, because like I'm so on IMDb, the way that they describe Jane Fonda is like the the trait that she has is trying on personas and embracing one fat after another, which just feels so sexist to me, like considering her biography. And I feel like that's how most people who know her from mother in law onward, um, that's how we see her is just this like vain. But what I, what I wanted to ask you is like what what deeply was propelling you down this click hole? And when you said that, I thought, well. This thing that you're saying people said about Jane Fonda, that she has all these different facets, she tries on multiple personalities, and maybe it was sexist then, that's actually what we were saying last week in a positive way about Lady Gaga, right? Her ability to inhabit all these different roles. Yeah, but she seems, the the difference in my mind is that she seems in control of her media. Like, she seems in control of her empire, where it seems like Jane Fonda for decades was very much like, in all of these interviews, like, she starts out in the 60s when she first started coming to you know, uh, the public conscience. And they are interviewing her being like, wow, you're living in your your own apartment as a lady. What's that like? And she's, <laughs> she's always going through that sort of interaction with the media. Whereas Lady Gaga has had instances like that, but she's very much in control of the way that she kind of interacts with and the media. And isn't being asked those kinds of stupid questions. No. Thanks in part to women of Jane Fonda's yeah, generation. thanks to nine to five. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what is the most amazing thing you came away with from this click hole dive? Okay, I mean, I think the the most amazing thing is definitely that her workout industry is actually this kind of far left kind of political agenda, which uh-huh. I, which I love. Um, but also, she has this thing. She I the term hair epiphany, which women use a lot. <laughs> um, she talks about having her first hair epiphany in a really strong way, which is when she got the clute hairstyle. And she basically she was Barbarella, and she like was drunk and being forced to like. She talks about she just got drunk and rolled around as Barbarella. She had, she. She was very drunk during the filming of that. She then cuts her hair, does the clute hairstyle. Then she goes off to America and she just like does activism for a long time. And she she credits the hairstyle for uh for radicalizing that, for that radicalizing. <laughs> and I what you ask for at the hair cutting shop. I the, these are her words. She said the hairstyle did it, and I I love that idea. <laughs> this has been what I learned in a click hole with Chase Burns. Thanks, Chase. <laughs> You're welcome. You know, I just came back from the dentist, Eli. Aren't you kind of busy with the rush to the midterms, Bernie? I'm supporting democratic socialists across the board, Democrats. But you, you got to go to the dentist. You know what I mean? She said, you got no cavities, Mr. Mister Sandy. What are you doing to get no cavities like this? You're 100,000 years old. <laughs> you should have one, two, maybe cavities. What'd you tell her? I looked her I got this electronic toothbrush called Quip, and it's blowing my mind and cleaning my teeth. Okay? Quip was designed to make brushing your teeth more simple, affordable, and enjoyable. Okay? And the hygienist at this point is trying to run away because she knows I'm about to go on a tear about my favorite electronic toothbrush. But I look at her, you know, and then we, we have a moment. She, she's like, okay, tell me more about this toothbrush, Mr. Sanders. And I tell, I, this is what I tell her. I say, this thing has sensitive vibrations, okay, that are gentle enough on your sensitive gums. My gums are so sensitive. They're as sensitive as pudding. 
People brush too hard. I brush too hard. We all brush too hard. And some electronic toothbrushes are too abrasive. But this clip has a built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to let you know when to switch sides, helping guide a full and even clean so that you don't just bone saw your teeth away. Up to 90% of us don't brush for a full two minutes or don't clean evenly. Quip doesn't require a clunky charger and runs for three months on one charge. So you can clean evenly for a long time. Okay. At this point, she's trying to do other things. You know, she's looked, she's looked away, but I'm screaming after her. I'm saying, listen to me. The brush heads are automatically delivered, you know, on the dentist recommended schedule. Every three months, they're coming for just $5. Don't you understand? Three of the four of us use bristles that are old and worn out, ineffective, but they're just going to send them to you new and fresh every three months. I love Quip. Don't take my Quip away from me. They're backed by over 20,000 dental professionals. Not 10,000, not 5,000, 20,000 dental professionals. Quip starts at just $25. This is the best point. If you get, go to getquip.com slash blabbermouth right now, you can get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electronic toothbrush. That's your first refill pack for free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash blabbermouth. Rich, you look a little troubled. I feel so alienated by all this Jane Fonda talk. I think I did some workout videos with my dad when I was younger as kind of a fun thing, but otherwise, I've never seen anything she's done. Do you know the Mickey Avalon song, Jane Fonda? I don't know who Mickey Avalon is. <laughs> For the best, probably. <laughs> yeah. All right, you'll have to show Rich that later. Jasmine, welcome yeah. back. Thank Jasmine you. Keimig. Uh, Rich... You are reading a highbrow, highfalutin, big theory about what's wrong with us now book. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good way of putting it. Although I don't want to make it seem like it's a doorstopper because it's really not. And I don't want to make it this seem like an endorsement because it's really not. But it is interesting. And I do endorse looking at it. Uh, I'm about halfway through Francis Fukuyama's uh, book, new book called Identity. And Fukuyama is sort of uh, famously the political scientist who wrote – um, the end of history, where he, you know, kind of declared that um, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, d- democracies flourish, and the world, as kind of a global entity, has chosen democratic capitalists. That that's the that's what we're doing now, mm-hmm. and not you know communism with any kind of authoritarian or totalitarian sort of sort of bent. That's not the way to go. And we were just going to sail on into beautiful post history bliss, <laughs> yes. and look where we are now. And so now identity, we- identity politics, identitarians, which is what Richard Spencer, the neo Nazi or Nazi, whatever you want to call him, that's calls right. himself, like. This is the thing at the center of all the things right now. Have we gone crazy about identity in this country? This is what, yeah, this is part of, uh, this book is kind of in a response to, okay, well, okay, obviously it's not the end of history. He doesn't think he was wrong, but he's, oh. he's, he's, he's saying, well, this is, what hap- this is what's happening. This is what's threatening democracy, is that people are completely obsessed with kind of sectarian identities that are um, uh, based in either, you know, national nationalism or some other kind of external category, gender or race or something. That doesn't help people unify behind a common 
theme and you know fight for what they uh, believe in because it's too sectarian. That's a very loose uh, way of, of 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 talking about part of his thesis, which I I haven't really even gotten to yet. What I have read so far, though, is um, his. And what, what is particularly interesting about the book is his sort of review of the philosophy of identity, where the sense of modern identity comes from. We haven't always had things like state-sanctioned dignity, for instance. Uh, you know, the, the, these ideas of the self and, um, and and what the state owes the self and what the self wants to do to be self-governed um, have, have evolved over time. And he gives us the sort of Western um, philosophical uh, review of that, which which I like. But does he offer any solutions or suggestions about how to overcome this sectarian? His um, so I, I'm just now getting to that part in, in the book, and I think that his solution is going to be um, that a focus on class over a focus on nationalism or race or gender uh, is going to be much more unifying. That it, you know, he, he's looking at he's looking at the fall, the financial crisis, and wondering, okay, what happened after the financial crisis? Um, you had uh, Occupy Wall Street spring up, and then you had the Tea Party spring up, and you would expect a kind of mass like anti like billionaire anti corporate um, response to that. And you sort of had that with Occupy Wall Street, but what you actually had was a nationalist, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, re- response to this. People kind of went. Um, yeah, Donald Trump eventually came about. Ah, he he that broad stroke. If you're like having a your your eyebrow pop up a little bit, you, you should right because the Tea Party was of course a grass or a, a, a astroturf, you know, um, a movement funded by billionaires. Occupy Wall Street wasn't. It's a, it's and a, it, it, the Tea yeah. Party was caught up in white identity politics. Right. I mean, so what is he? I, I still don't totally understand what is he saying. We should replace all these like kind of increasingly narrow descriptions of identity that people will really embrace and act out on. Uh, what what do we replace that with? Uh, yeah, class like the the poor rising up above the uh, above the the wealthy. I think that 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 was that. I think that's where he's going to go with this. But I'm not 100 percent sure. Like I said, I'm only halfway through it. But, yeah. Let me ask you the question of our identitarian times where everything that – well, this is the mockery anyway of identity politics, <clears throat> right? What you feel is who you are mm-hmm. and what you declare about your feelings at a given moment is actually in your mind an immutable you know, expression of your identity. So how do you feel about this book? Oh, how do I feel <laughs> about this book? Um, you know – I think that he's maybe skating over a lot of well right now I right now I'm loving the philosophical uh review right the mm-hmm. the the kind of breakdown of what modern identity is composed of he says it's composed of this Greek idea called themos or recognition or a desire within us to be recognized as a self the history of valuing the, the, that inner self that you're talking about, this feeling self, over mm-hmm. the society's perception of that self, which he uh, thinks begins with Rousseau, uh, and then um, the evolving concept of dignity. I love that. I feel like I'm like loving this kind of like uh, this this history of, of of that idea, just because it's like, oh yeah, this stuff really isn't mutable. 
so people had to write it down and be like, no, no, we're giving everyone dignity now. <laughs> you know, like we're we're deciding that people can't be worse than other people, or that you know, and the, and the state needs to. Part of the reason why we organize ourselves as a state is to protect that you know uh, essential quality of ourselves. I'm a little bit nervous um, uh, about this idea that. Um, race and gender and um, sexuality or whatever are not useful um, uh, ways of organizing politically. They seem to me to be tremendously useful um, ways of organizing politically and not at all opposed. In fact, the concerns are interlocking. So I think that you know maybe this notion that the, these sectarian identities are, are what's preventing democracy from happening or leading to the falls of, of democracy um, – is is a little bit flawed because some of those pieces can come together, right? Obviously, not white nationalists, let's say, and uh, and you know, Black Lives Matter, but um, Black Lives Matter, trans movements, women movements, these kinds of interlocking movements can kind of come together and and overcome maybe the uh, what is a bad identitarian streak on the uh, nationalist end. Who would you say this book is for? Um. <laughs> Someone who brings you into a corner at a party and says, you know, I think the Me Too movement's gone too far. <laughs> <laughs> or like, you know, I like Black Lives Matter, but I don't, you know, I get that, you know, they shouldn't be writing. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, like seriously, the, the, don't, don't burn down your own, your own blocks. Yeah. yeah. I, read, <laughs> I read a Washington Post interview with Fukuyama where he talks about um, the other kind of problem he is raising about identity politics and like the real strong adherence to them right now mm-hmm. is that it inhibits understanding of each other, yeah. that it inhibits rational discourse, it inhibits open mindedness, this idea that like, I feel, therefore I am, I feel, therefore I know my truth is my truth is the truth. It doesn't matter what your truth is. Therefore, like that is a problem in terms of democratic discourse, according to Fukuyama. But it's yeah. like, who, t- that's like so boring, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I, I don't know. It, it just seems like people, it's an older way of thinking about identity and I, I don't know. I haven't read the book. This feels very much like college right now where I'm just sitting on a discussion I, I don't quite get. But um, yeah, I, I don't – that just sounds not really sexy to me. But you maybe it doesn't really the matter. the idea of like it being my truth. You are like and, rational discourse oh. and, and that type of thing oh, yeah. is, a, is a bit – I don't know. It seems a bit impossible yeah. now. It's, I understand. Like I guess why is the goal rational discourse like we're – like a, it's ever existed, or yeah. uh, you know, except right. for a sort of brief period of time under a white-dominated uh, House and, and Senate after World War II, following massive government uh, influx uh, into education. Uh, but you know, and you know, like I, I guess I just don't know. No, I will speak in defense of rational discourse. <laughs> <laughs> Please, Please do. Yeah, I'd like to hear. It. I will with say the Nazi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would make you the Nazi. Well, no, no, no. I just mean like. I think I was just to, to summarize, I think the point that we were agreeing on was like, you know, it's basically a call to be like, you can convince a Nazi to stop being a Nazi just by talking nice at them. No, the way I heard it is because the Nazi says, I feel like a Nazi, therefore I'm a Nazi, therefore I don't need to take in any contrary information. What I feel is what I know is my truth is my truth. Yeah. That makes that person 
impossible to discourse with, to use another, you know, maybe off-putting, collegiate, boring, old-timey <laughs> phrase. Yeah. And, but, yeah. but that, um, that orientation to the world is not, or that thought process, that number of steps is not unique to Nazis, which is not to say that, you know, someone who identifies uh, in a, with another group is a Nazi. I'm just saying the right. same process can be at play. So yes. I will briefly... <laughs> briefly speak in defense of rational discourse and i will just say it this way so the the era of maybe the golden age of rational discourse that you just problematized that you said was problematic you know the the uh white dominated senate was your example yeah yeah yes imperfect problematic not the best we can do but it can be a lot fucking worse so just go back you want to see what irrational discourse looks like Go back to the Middle Ages. Go back to the Dark Ages. Go back to way before there was anything like democracy in anyone's mind as a notion. And you can find so many, I was going to say beautiful, but that's like just Trump fucking with my mind. So many <laughs> ugly <laughs> examples of human beings doing crazy, irrational, illogical, harmful, harmful, harmful things to each other. And so... Rational discourse, in my mind, has been a, an improvement on that, though not perfect. There ends my defense. <laughs> sure. I guess we could, yeah. Oh, thank you. Whoa, whoa, <laughs> whoa, whoa. That is a first for I, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I guess who can disagree with that? The, you know, the only I issue is, is that um, rational discourse does not seem to be uh, awarded by uh, the political system in, in the country right now. And so people trying to, you know, the only way to really kind of seize power doesn't seem to be to be like, hey, you should dignify these people and pass <laughs> <laughs> and, and pass law because they're human you know, beings who, who breathe and, and try to eat food uh, like, like, like you do. Um, because, you know, because Rational there's, there's, discourse doesn't mean believing in or dignifying nonsense, no. but I will say I think what you said is exactly the problem right now. Yeah. It is exactly the problem. How... Do you have anything close to rational discourse with people who are committed to acting in bad faith, filling the discourse with lies, and pretending to have a discourse that is reasonable or rational when, in truth, that's not their intention at all? Yeah. Or someone that values you as a person as well. Because right. I, I feel like that's also a hard jump to make is when I'm talking with a Nazi or – someone like that or a white nationalist or me yeah or, or Eli yeah I, I feel like I'm not really they're not acting in the similar faith that you know my as a black woman that my my dignity or whatever exists right yeah. Well, right. and, and I would just add, you know, we've talked about this on the on the on the program before, <laughs> but just the the fact that we we the worlds are so separate. You know, Fukuyama's mm -hmm. talking about uh, ages when we all had a shared reality, and now there are just people living in you know um, in bubbles that don't get the same information as 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 other people, and so it's very difficult to break breakthrough. Right. Doesn't he also talk about conscription uh, and like being in the military? Yes, he, he yeah he he suggests a kind of non-white nationalism. <laughs> uh, 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 basically, he's suggesting that we all get together based on abstract ideas and um, uh, and benign experiences of service. To, <laughs> mm -hmm. So he's yeah he he he, he argues for like everyone doing um, a national service yeah. after eighteen. Germany does this, you know, for for instance, like mm -hmm. you don't have to go into the military. Maybe you go and you build houses for for you know poor people or you know whatever. And so he advocates for that kind of thing so that we all ha at least can be like 
well, so what'd you do during your gap year? You know, we can all have that conversation, at least have a place to start. Or just to put on my old timey hat again, think of it like the WPA, the Works Progress Administration, which wasn't just like a gap year. This was like people out doing real national service that we still benefit from in national parks all over the country, having a shared experience, meeting across class lines and gender lines and race lines. It's not the military. It's helping society right here. And you do, through that kind of work, forge common understanding, shared senses of reality, and respect for each other's differences. I think that would be great, especially as someone who taught a lot of first-year writing classes in college, if like people just had some time to go out and live in the world a little bit and talk to one another. <laughs> I think they would be much better college students, too. <laughs> All right. Sorry to make that weirdly personal at the end, but uh, yeah. Well, it's all identity is all about the personal. That's right. This book at least got us to a very interesting place. It's Francis Fukuyama's Identity. Jasmine, thank you. Anytime. Rich, thank you. Thanks. And that's the show. If you've got something you want to say to Dan Savage, Rich Smith, Jasmine Keimig, Chase Burns, or me, call the Blabberphone, 206-302-2063 or dive on into our Blabbermouth Podcast Facebook group. Thanks, as always, to Ahame Filet J. Aluo for making the music we use on the show each week, and to Nancy Hartunian for bringing our blabbering mouths to your ears. <laughs>